Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Meta, a podcast about podcasts. Uh, my name is Peter Wells and I'm joined today by a man I've been listening to for, I feel like, two decades. I might be getting the timing wrong there. Um, when I first moved down to Melbourne back in the early 2000s, one of the first things I fell in love with was Triple uh, R. Uh, the, the, look, you know, we, we did have decent community radio stations up in Sydney, but nothing matched Triple R in terms of what I feel was also kind of the golden age of Triple R. Uh, those early 2000s when I first moved here. Anyway, one of the highlights of the calendar at the time was uh, a show called The Sweetest Plum, and and I really, really dug it. Um, I, I... Reverse, you might want to redo it. The show is called The Pinch. Oh, sorry, R. yes, it was, it was called want... The Pinch. Holy crap, yeah. That's how long... <laughs> I'll let you go back and redo it. <laughs> no, 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 keep it all in. Oh, my God, yeah, yeah, you're right. Declan Faye, welcome to the show, mate. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for having me. Yes, that show on Triple R. Uh, was called the pinch. I assume you were you listening to it in the late night uh, version, or, yeah, or the had late we night. already evolved? Yeah. So, so I had like four shows that um, were must listens at the time, and it was the pinch. It yeah. was the Spin Doctors. Oh yeah. Uh, there were a couple of others. I'm, I'm trying to think. Yeah, Run like you stole something. Oh yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah. It was just. It, it was such a what what felt like such an incredible creative time at that station. What, what was it like being at the station at the time? So that was, when did I start? I started with Chris Kennett actually in a version before The Pinch, which was, uh, we used to call it a cult show, but I think that was just because it was very late at night and had some very stoned people listening to it. <laughs> but that was that was a show called Unexplained Phenomena mm-hmm. that uh, was, that Chris had been doing actually, I think since high school or just out of high school, that was kind of like... Uh, it was a very early kind of show that was kind of about like weird internet memes, like conspiracy theories, like everything from like it's supernatural, extraterrestrial stuff. And I, he, he asked me to go on that show and a co-host of his dropped out because we knew each other at uni and I didn't know a lot about that stuff. And I would just every week I was just hanging in there. I think that he wanted a phone answer because he didn't like talking to the people that used to call in <laughs> in the middle of the night. So I... I didn't mind doing it though. Like I kind of like, again, a kid from the suburbs from a pretty conservative Catholic family. And then suddenly you're talking to people that are kind of having seances in their house Mm. and everything from that to a woman would call in whose cat she believed could talk. Mm. And she would put the cat on the phone and you could hear the cat purring like, and then you would hear this like, it, it kind of could say hello. Like you could hear this like, how, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God. And so there was that, or there was just people that would just call up. Like it was like, we'd get weird suburban kids that were a bit like us. And so that was unexplained phenomena. And then 
around about early 2000, I want to say 2002, it's just started to morph a little bit more to we would talk comedy news, you know. I mean, the extent of it at the time was we would Google, like, the weirdest stories of the week and talk about those and then sort of thumb through the Herald Sun. And that was when it became the pinch and then it sort of moved to the main comedy show on Triple R. We started doing comedy festival shows and um, Chris and I have often said we were kind of in some ways doing a podcast before there was podcast mm-hmm. in that the station manager at the time, Tracy Hutchison, the first feedback we ever got from her, she said, I listened to your show for the first time last night. I like the dynamic between you and I like the energy, but I'm not sure that your first talk break should have been half an hour long, <laughs> and <laughs> which is a long time for a radio talk break. Like if you're on commercial radio, maybe four minutes and triple R, you know, probably you're getting up to seven, nine minutes, but seven or, you know, seven to nine minutes. But yeah, that was kind of where, uh, that was kind of where that sort of, you know, I just, I I liked that it was, it was a show for kind of outsiders and people that weren't listening to commercial media. I kind of always liked being like a little bit, you know, the showbiz term they use is off Broadway. I kind of liked being off Broadway. Mm, mm. Um, and that's what, you know, when you say you hadn't, you know, you didn't, hadn't heard radio like that, that's kind of great. Cause that's what we wanted. We didn't want it to sound like a commercial radio show. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that I, I was pretty gung ho about podcasts way back in the day. Like, um, I remember when iTunes 4.9 came out and that mm-hmm. was the first one that had the, <laughs> the podcast directory built into it. And, you know, yeah. by then I, I was still living in Melbourne at the time, but yeah, yeah. Like I, I quickly transitioned all of those shows that I mentioned earlier, Run Like You Stole Something and The Pinch and also The Spin Doctors. Uh, I moved all of that stuff across to the iPod, <laughs> the iPod mm. mini at the yeah, time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, that suddenly became it. Like it suddenly blew my mind that, oh my God, I've got like, you know, uh, DVR, but for radio, this is fantastic. And we did it. We we Chris was very keen on podcasting early on. He was doing like early. We got one of the listeners, a guy called Seb Con, made a website for us in early two thousands, and would have like little tracks that could stream. Mm-hmm. And not many not many people were doing that. I didn't even really understand what it was. One week he just put up a story about mine about of mine about a VW catching on fire, and people could re listen to it. And I kind of went, I really like this. That like that story is not just a moment in time that you had to have been listening listening to like anybody could listen to it at any time and so then then we yeah when it moved to the seven o'clock version we pretty much podcast the whole show but you had to take the music out yeah, so yeah. it would just be like it would it basically became just the dialogue and I didn't I didn't overly get it yet I was kind of a late adopter of iTunes and I didn't overly get what it was going to be but it's funny as we started to do live shows for the pinch people would say oh, I can't listen to you at seven but I've been listening to your podcast or we would do uh you know you'd get an email from a kind of interstate listener or even international listeners we were starting to get at the time who'd say I've been listening to your podcast mm. and I remember on the Libsyn who is a podcast server mm-hmm. used to have its own this is pre-iTunes would have its own chart yep, of the yep. top shows mm-hmm. And I remember we would we would sort of come up near the top, but we would the show you could never beat was a show that was called and we always thought it was funny that we couldn't beat the show. It was called Keith and His Girlfriend Talk Shit. Mm-hmm. And if you're a deep podcast nerd, you'll know that that's the show that then evolved into one of the first biggest podcasts called Keith and the Girl mm-hmm. because they were boyfriend and girlfriend. Then they split and it just became him and his girlfriend talking about 
sort of the aftermath of their relationship and trying to be friends. And that was a very, very early popular podcast. So that was what planted all the seeds for me to then, after I finished at Triple R, to go on and start The Sweetest Plum. Yeah, I remember that that early time of podcasting where there'd be weird shows like uh, The Dawn and Drew Show that was inexplicably number one around the world just because it was something new and it was, yeah, again, I think that that was like two hipsters with lots of tattoos, but mm. they lived in like rural America. And so it was a really bizarre yeah. fish out of water kind of thing. But yeah, I loved it that was, at the time. It was sort of like, it was a bit like, it didn't know like commercial stations and commercial entities hadn't picked up on it as a thing yet. Radio stations didn't really understand it because they want you tuning in so they can sell advertising Mm. at that time. And so people didn't really get what it was. I mean, even as we moved, the the inspiration for The Sweetest Pump was a couple of things. One was I, uh, Chris and I, who I worked with at Triple R, wrote at Rove for years and then that show finished and – we then moved on to a series of uh, very failed uh, TV pilots at Channel 7, <laughs> which is uh, you. they were trying to do comedy and they we kept going on to different shows and you always know when a pilot is or when a show is about to be axed because they literally, first they start removing furniture out of the room, like literally while you're riding on a table, some guy you've never met will walk in and remove the table mm-hmm. and then gradually they start removing staff. Like you walk in and the woman who was doing the research for the show has has just been disappeared. <laughs> and uh, I remember I was wor- I was riding with Nick Maxwell on that show, mm-hmm. who people might remember was the voice of Kevin Rudd on Rove, the kind of maniacal laugh of Kevin Rudd. Um, that was Nick. Nick does all the video insert stuff on the weekly at the moment. So the stuff that all the little interstitial video bits, that's Nick. And he has a very perverse kind of – very distinct sense of humor that only he can sort of write. And him and I were, there was a bunch of us working on this show, but him and I had made friends on this pilot that was kind of bursting into flames and (laughs) it was about to combust. And one day we went for lunch and I knew, I knew the show was ending and we went, we were in South Melbourne and we went, it was kind of a sign of how everything was going. We went to possibly the worst place you could go to lunch. It was a, you know, when you get a Hungry Jack's, but it's stuck on the side of a service station. Mm-hmm. Do you know there's like mm-hmm. one miserable 17-year-old girl working in there? And uh, That's my local like Thomastown, mate. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And so I remember eating there and it kind of, we didn't want to go back to the office because we were like, I think we're going to be fired. And Nick had been listening to the Russell Brand podcast that was being done at the time that I think it was just before he then got fired for making quite salacious comments. But that was one of the first times a podcast kind of ended up in the news because he was such high profile. He'd uh, made some, they, they were pretty distasteful comments about a friend of his and someone else in the news and something they'd done together. And he got dragged, but because he got sacked and he was so high profile people were talking a lot about podcasts and Nick actually said to me he goes you know I listened to that podcast and he goes I really liked it like not for the controversial thing but you could hear Russell Brand for an hour and it wasn't like an interview on a tv show or radio station where it's him for five minutes a lot of gags you play a sting at the end like triple m and then you go off to a (laughs) you do that well to a Jimmy Bunt yeah to a Jimmy Bunt well I worked at triple m so I'm very familiar with how it works but uh then you go off to a track or an ad or a Whatever. And so Nick was talking about it. And then I said, uh, 
I said, would you want to do a podcast? Like we could just, we, we could just, you know, I remember how we used to post it at triple R and would you want to do it? And he said, yeah, yeah, sure. And so basically we were correct. That show was axed, I think that day or the next day. And a few days later we started uh, plugging in. It was those, like those old white Macs Mm -hmm. that were very chunky and they'd crack if you closed them too tight. We started plugging it in. We do what you did when you learn how to um, do anything these days. You you go on YouTube and you look up how to make a podcast and there's a 14-year-old kid doing everything really fast (laughs) and really smart. And what you do is you click on this Mm -hmm, and you go to this mm -hmm. and then you do that and then you do that. And... uh, I was just scribbling it down. The Mac had GarageBand on it, and uh, we started. We just we started recording. We didn't even have a name. We just uh, we we literally on the first one, about a few minutes before we went to air, we decided to call it the Sweetest Plum for two reasons. One was we always liked that scene in The Simpsons where it's Krusty's mm-hmm. comeback special, and uh, a single plum. Krusty said, and <laughs> that's right. And then Lisa goes, uh, Lisa says, no, Krusty says to Lisa and Bart, kids, I don't know how to thank you. You've got my career back on track. I, I, I don't know what I could do. I'll do anything you want. And then Lisa goes, it's okay. We're getting 50% of the T-shirt sales. And then Krusty goes, what? But that's the sweetest plum. <laughs> and we always like that quote. And then there was this thing when we were writing at Rove, anyone that kind of got the easy job for the day, like if somebody was kind of, um, like there was one guy that just got to do the what who was literally going through boxes of like rotten vegetables that people had sent in that looked like cock and balls. <laughs> and we would say, ah, oh, that person's got the sweetest plum today. It was kind of like, that's the easiest job. Like, mm-hmm. and it became this kind of running joke. And so we kind of like, we just, I just said, should we call it the sweetest plum? And so, um, that's kind of what we, that's, that's what we called the show. And it was just totally organic. It wasn't like, oh, we need a name that stands out on our grid or we need, it was just, let's call it that. Like two minutes before the show, plug the mics in and just started recording. Recording had no idea what we were going to talk about, and um, we just we just started talking. And you can hear that in the first shows; they're not very well directed, and they kind of they float around. And sometimes we put the mics in wrong. Like there's one episode where they're plugged in, and the mics are mono directional, but we've faced them the wrong way. So we're talking like across the table, and the voices are really really soft. Um, there's uh, a couple where like one of the mics will be turned off, but you can hear us kind of finding the shape of it. And uh, I can hear us kind of working out what it is. And I, I, I've said this to a few people. We, I actually struggled with it because I was so used to doing radio stations and I was so used to doing commercial, like writing for commercial media that I was used to things being in very short sound bites mm. and you can hear Nick's like going off on a tangent and there's this kind of, I'm trying to drag him back to the main story. And because I was used to, Oh, you have to get out after four minutes or you have to find like, you know what they call in comedy or radio. You've got to find a tag. What's the tag? What's the button on the, on the sketch or the scene. And then I kind of realized maybe like four or five episodes through, oh, actually what Nick's doing there, like putting a tangent on a tangent on a tangent, that's actually the heart of it because that's what people don't get to hear. They hear the the bit that everyone's planned, but they haven't heard where it might go. Mm-hmm. And I realized like, oh, just keep going with that. Like go to those places that you wouldn't hear on a radio show. You know, the, the bit that comes after the six minute interview with all the kind of punchy gags that everyone's planned. And so that was kind of, 
the birth of it. And then ironically, once we started doing that is when it blew up. I think uh, probably a colleague of yours, Michael Lalo from The Age, wrote an article which was the best podcast in the, – the, Australia is making some of the best podcasts in the world and wrote a list of podcasts. And from my memory, he literally – put in pretty much every podcast that was out at the time because there was only about 12 podcasts in Australia. It was a very thoughtful article. Like he clearly listened to the episodes, but he literally listed the 12 episodes that were on iTunes. And from there, it just caught this moment in time where it – very early 2010, and it just caught this wave. It was Ricky Gervais was doing his podcast with uh, Steve Merchant and Carl, uh, Carl Pilkington overseas. It just caught this moment in time. I remember going mm-hmm. to see Ira Glass talk at the Athenaeum Theatre, and he said, he, he said, look, I'm really astounded. We don't even have the show on in Australia. We just have a podcast, and I've sold out the Athenaeum Theatre. Mm-hmm. And it was this moment in time, I think, where – all the alternative media hadn't kicked in yet. Like you still had your four TV channels. You had cable TV, but a very minimal amount of people watching, you know, especially comedy on that. Streaming hadn't kicked in. The uh, commercial stations weren't streaming their shows yet uh, for uh, for radio. And so you had this moment where everyone was trying to find something that wasn't the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Like it was just this moment before that had been kind of commercialised. And people were reaching for it. And so you got people looking for stuff that they couldn't normally find. And so we were, I mean, we were very, very, very lucky to uh, to land on that, to, to land in that moment. I've got so many questions to follow up with, but um, we'll, yeah. we'll start with the, you mentioned the kind of long running jokes, like the sweetest plum that just kind of pulled, you came out of nowhere and, and have now mm. become part of the show. Mm. Do you worry sometimes that that might alienate people who, you know, weren't listening 10 years ago and, you know, uh, when you make these big boy jokes that... um... (laughs) (laughs) So you're right. I've thought about that a lot. Like a lot of it was accidental things early on. Like when you do commercial radio, they often get you to plan what your spikes will be. Like what's the thing you're going to talk about that is going to drag everybody in? Or Nick used to laugh about, or Nick used to make fun of it, that they would say, what is your arc going to be for this week? Like, uh, God, I can't even remember the things we did. Like one of them was, and it was true, Declan can't cook. And so you build this arc and you plan it out and you go like, this is when Nick and I were on Triple M for a brief period. Declan can't cook. On the second day, we'll do an interview with his girlfriend who says he's a terrible cook. On the third day, we'll get Manu Fidel on the line and he'll give Declan a recipe. On the fourth day, Declan will cook that recipe. And on the fifth day, we'll hear, you know, the, you know what his girlfriend's got to say about that. All of that actually happened across five days on our show. It did end quite amusingly in that my girlfriend got sick off the food that I cooked for her at the time. But that did she that, find that, that funny? The, a, no, she. I remember her saying to me, this is the last time I'm involved in one of your stupid things. But it's funny because I, that the difference in a podcast is you don't, you, you almost, you don't plan it. It's something that comes up organically and it's somebody has messaged you or somebody has, and I remember the big boy thing was organic. Nick was talking about kind of being at a pub watching the footy and the people that kind of frightened him most was those Aussie guys that would wear big shorts and would often have like a, a polo shirt or a hard rock cafe barley t-shirt on. And 
he said you knew them because you would always hear this change clinking in their pockets when they walked. And he said, he goes, the only word I can think about for these guys is big boys, like they're boys that never grew up. And it just kind of, and it's funny, you do it and you don't think about it and you post the episode and then suddenly, you know, 20, 30, 40 listeners start messaging you or writing on Facebook or tweeting like, oh, I know a big boy. And they start like taking photos of their mates and sending it <laughs> and it just catches. Mm. And it was this insane thing where people were photographing their mates mm. or they were, then somebody goes, here's a big boy sighting for this week. And it it was quite remarkable. Like it, people were sending like photos of guys they took on trains and trams. We had to like stop putting those up because it was kind of invading people's privacy. But it just caught like it just, and it and we never planned it. And yeah, I do worry. I worry with a new listener that you have this inbuilt language. And you, you kind of, the show has its own, it's kind of like turning up. I did Indonesian at uni and it's kind of like turning up to the class, like halfway through the year and everybody knows the language Mm -hmm. and knows each other and you don't, but I've been really conscious of it to say, to try and give explanations every time. Like, oh, so, you know, a big boy is X or, um, the, you know, uh, to, to try and invite people into that world. Mm. And, uh, every now it's funny with a podcast, I always find like, you, you, you'll have this peak and then the listeners gradually drop off because everybody can't keep listening to everything. And when I say drop off, like it just drops a little bit hmm. and then you'll do something and there'll be another peak. And I thought we were over all the peaks until early this year or early last year in the pandemic, Nick's job working at the weekly was to watch quite seriously three hours of studio 10 hmm. every day to try and find, they were doing little clips on and the what show. a gold mine that turned out to be. <laughs> Well, it did drive him a bit nuts because mm. he was working from home. He was watching it every day and then he was having to rewatch it to try and find bits that he could reuse on the show. Yeah, that, and, that's, uh, that's cruel. That's really cruel. And he was in this particularly, in a bit of a mood. We were recording remotely because of the pandemic. I could just tell he was a bit edgy and I said to him, like, it's something like, are you annoyed? He goes, I'm sorry, I've been watching an inordinate amount of Studio 10 and my will to live is going. And then he went on this rant about Studio 10 and specifically about Joe Hildebrand. And it wasn't your usual, like, oh, I can't stand Joe Hildebrand. It was such a specifically odd thing that... Nick was so annoyed that Joe Hildebrand had said, look, everybody knows the internet just shuts off at 6 p.m. every night. There's no point being on the internet. So our family has decided to go analog and we've bought a DVD player. And something about that enraged Nick to the point. There's a lot in it, like in that grab, like he says. Oh, I remember. (laughs) (laughs) I've had to watch an inordinate amount of Studio 10 whilst in isolation and... Joe Hildebrand on that show, he is grotesque in a way that I can't put into words. <laughs> he had this thing today where he said, what happens is everyone knows this, like because of the crisis and the lockdown, at about six o'clock at night, the internet just goes in, it goes out to lunch or something, like everything's just really slow to upload. So what we've done is I've bought a DVD player online and yeah, we're going analog. We're watching DVDs. <laughs> and I was just looking at him going, what the f- fuck are you talking about at six o'clock every night nothing happens to my internet nothing not not a not a there's not a gust of air happens to it but he's going oh oh no everybody knows everyone in the whole fucking world knows the internet dies at six o'clock at night and it's like no it doesn't you lying 
And who's he for? The people watching Studio 10, I assume, are like older women yeah. who are buying fucking shithouse pieces of exercise equipment yeah. that do jack shit or bowls <laughs> to store old pies in. <laughs> Why would they want to watch Joe Hildebrand? But it's like the internet, you know, in the firstly, the internet doesn't shut down at 6 p.m. It's never shut down at 6 p.m. And secondly, he says, we've gone analog. We've bought a DVD player. And DVD player is called a digital video disc. Like, and something about that sent Nick insane. And as I was re-listening to it, I just couldn't stop laughing. And I didn't even think. I just thought, I'll just put this up and as a bit of a teaser to the episode. And it was during the pandemic and I was homeschooled. I put up in the morning, homeschooled my kids for the rest of the day and just happened to check my phone at three. And it was like, you have 3,000 retweets, 400 comments. It was insane. And the thing had been viewed in the space of a day like 30,000 times. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it becomes – we never had something go viral like that. And then it becomes its own – it gets its own momentum. Suddenly people had grabbed, screen grabbed it and then reposted it. Before I knew it, it was on top of Reddit. It had like – and it was just about this very specific thing that, no, the internet doesn't shut off at six. And it I think it must have annoyed Joe Hildebrand because for months after that, people would tweet at Joe Hildebrand like – what are you doing being on Twitter at 6 p.m.? You know the internet shuts off. <laughs> it just, it was I missed the most all of that. I missed thing. all of that because yeah. Joe um, decided to block me a couple of years ago. Oh, right, yeah. I watched one random episode of Studio 10, tweeted my comments and was immediately blocked. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas you guys turned it into a career. <laughs> but that's what I can't work out. Why didn't he block us? Like... His phone must have caught fire that day. Like, he didn't block me. He didn't block the sweetest plum. And it, we end up doing a whole episode. The next episode was about the reactions to it. And we got, like, fun, you know, messages from Joe Hildebrand's neighbours and people that have worked on the show. And, um, it was, yeah, it, he never, he never blocked us. And it kind of just, like, the whole next episode was called Relaunching the Hildebrand. And it was reactions that we got. And that went from, we went from like, I don't know, at the time, maybe we were getting for an episode, like 5,000 an episode or something. And it literally spiked that the next episode, we got 15,000. I mean, from a minute thing that Nick just said that at the time mm. I thought was amusing, but. It's that thing, you, if you plan to go viral or you plan for something to catch, it never works. Yeah. But it's when you do something kind of – that's a, this show, that's why we never plan for The Sweetest Plum. Every time we do something, going right back to the start, just going, let's make the show, it's always the accidents that work. And so I try not to intellectualize it too much. I just – you know, it's if for some reason it's the accidents that kind of work for us. Yeah, right. You know, you, you're almost like a, um, an elder statesman of podcasting uh, in, in this country mm-hmm. at this point. Um, but I, I noticed in 2020 a hell of a lot of comedians. Oh, I'm going to put that. I'm going to make people say that like on my intros for things now. Yeah, you take an it, elder take statesman it yeah. <laughs> of podcasting. I'm going to use elder statesman, pioneer, mm. uh, trailblazing. Yep. I'm going to use elder. I'll, I'll take elder statesman. <laughs> I'm more than happy with that title. But yeah, uh, in 2020, a hell of a lot of comedians suddenly realized that they better have a podcast uh, because Mm. every live venue shut down. Yeah. Uh, Are you getting a lot of uh, comedians asking for advice on on kind of how you you were able to successfully build a show or do you feel that 
a lot of your successes because of the fact that you were there so early. Uh, oh, yeah, I do think it's that. I do think it's because we were there so early, but I also think it's because we kept doing it. Like, if you go to iTunes, you will see, like, I mean, I'm sure you've been on iTunes You uh, to the app, now Apple Podcasts uh, menu, uh, it's called. You'll see, like, there's so many shows that somebody did for kind of six or 10 or 15 episodes. Mm-hmm. And that's when it's easy, when you kind of got this energy and you've bought the gear and you're really excited. Mm, the honeymoon and, period. And, yeah. yeah, and you kind of like, you know, your mates like it at the start. And then, like anything, like learning a new instrument or a skill, there's this hard bit where you hit it, where you realize we have to keep doing this and do it all the time and keep engaging with listeners. And because we've had periods, the, the dumbest thing we ever did was about five years ago, we were both really busy. I was working on Ronnie Cheng, international student. Nick was working on the weekly and on something else at the time. And we didn't post an episode for about four months. And that's when people get annoyed. It's because it's like you've been this friend that's always been there for them. And like we kept apologizing online, but we should have just, that was before we knew how to do it remotely. We should have just done it remotely or just done it, you know, called each other up and recorded it or something. And that, that we had a huge dip then because people have, mm. and I think they thought, oh, they've just disappeared. And uh, like, you know, we get messages from people going, have you died or is one of you sick or, and that was really silly. Like we should have, we should have, I, I think we've got most of those people back, but we shouldn't have done, we should have, we should have stuck at it. But when you stick at it, it gives this consistency to people. Mm. And I think that, yeah, I think that's a lot to do with it is that we've kept doing it. Like the only two that are still going from that time uh, in comedy podcasts is us and Will Anderson's TOEFOP podcast. And we started a week apart from each other and we've both been going for 10 years. Mm. And uh, I think that's a lot to do with it. The, one, the phone call, I wouldn't say people get advice before they do their show because most people with podcasts just plug their gear in and go and it's a lot easier i was at a at the we get a lot of our equipment from manny's music and dj store like they've got really good it's it's kind of really accessible gear but i was there buying a microphone during the pandemic and they've got things that are now called like when we started if you said we want to do a podcast they had no idea they'd just Mm -hmm. give you a bunch of gear now I saw on their shelf they've got all these like kits that are called content creator kits and it's like they give you everything. And so the phone call that I usually get is the first time someone has deleted their own episode. <laughs> I usually get this, oh, my God, how do I get it back? Mm. And you can hear the panic and you just go, you can't, mm-hmm. you can't, I'm sorry, that is gone. Um, it <laughs> like will never come back. Groundskeeper Willie's uh, uh, Game Boy, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it once it's gone, it never comes back. And you kind of realize like you it's actually part of the rite of passage of being a podcaster mm-hmm. is not only <laughs> do you have to delete your own episode, mm-hmm. you it it usually has to have been the best one you've ever done. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Like there has to be this moment where you are screaming and swearing at your own podcast when you're um I remember years ago a listener actually saw realized it was me in a cafe and tweeted just spotted Declan F at a cafe and he is holding up both middle fingers and swearing at his computer screen and it was true it was I'd lo- I hadn't lost the whole podcast but I'd lost a section of it mm-hmm. and this listener realized it was me I don't know my vo- they heard me swearing and recognized my voice or 
Um, that was it. That's the call I got a lot during the pandemic. How, a, how do you do it remotely? And B, what do I do if I've lost an episode? And I said, you, you yell and swear a lot and then you go back and record another one really quickly before you start to brood on it. But, uh, yeah, I, I would say I get, you often get, uh, once people have started, it beca- it's those questions of how do I keep listeners? How do I, especially now, how do I find listeners? Because there is only a finite amount of podcast listeners and the pie, every time a new podcast comes, the pie keeps getting sliced, like, mm-hmm. you know, thinner and thinner. And so there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that these days, I think, that people wondering, not so much, I think them starting it is okay, but how? Do, what do you do to keep going with it and to build it? Yeah, right. Now that we are past the the worst of 2020 and, you know, mm-hmm. we were joking before we started recording that, um, you know, there's going to be a, a long hangover of 2020 right mm. into 2021. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. do you hope to to bring back some live shows and, and, and a bit more of, of that audience uh, engagement? Yeah, we love doing the live shows. We, uh, we the, the initial live show is because I had heard – um, I used to listen to, well, I still do listen to This American Life and when they did their live shows and they always made them really big events, like people would come and write a new thing for that show. Or well, there was one woman, like again, just a story that Tig Notaro had told before she was the kind of like very famous comedian she's now, had told a story on This American Life about how she was, as a kid, obsessed with Taylor Dane, the... Uh, uh, the the pop star from the 1980s and how she had run into Taylor Dane three times in her life and embarrassed herself in front of her every time. And so she told that they got her to redo that story at the live show and then they kind of in secret, they had booked Taylor Dane and Taylor Dane came out and performed. And I remember listening to it going, that's amazing. They've taken just a quick throwaway story Tignataro told and they've built it into a kind of event, like they've kind of brought to life in front of your eyes. And I remember thinking that I'd, I'd love to do something like that. So we started doing live podcasts. We just, we did them at trades hall and, uh, we, you know, we'd plug the computer into the desk and the sound guy would be hanging microphones to try and catch the audience's laugh. And I'd always say, can you pump the like audio up on the audience laugh? So it sounds like they're having this, you know, insane time. And that's kind of what we did. Like we tried to do one or two every year to try and make it a live event. And then ironically, we did a show last year because we always had this thing about could we make it to 180 episodes because Nick always loved when he was watching the darts growing up, that the darts commentator, the highest score you could get was 180 and the darts commentator would go, 180. And so we decided we'd do a show. And ironically, the show last year for our 180th, well, it was a live show and it was on March 13 which was just before it was the day that yeah everybody panicked about the which rightfully panicked about the uh coronavirus uh the grand prix was cancelled that morning mm-hmm. the comedy festival was cancelled that afternoon and then all those lockdown measures started to come in so we did that gig and i remember because everyone was quite nervous like we had a few people like quite a few people not turn up and i remember nick walked out and he said to the audience because we had all this stuff planned, but it's like, what's going on with this virus? I remember Nick just goes, before I could say anything, he goes, okay, now who is frightened? And like the whole audience applauded and we did the rest of the show and then uh, we did the rest of the show and then 
yeah, we didn't see each other for the next year. Everything after that was remote recording. But for us, it became a kind of therapy. Like we both had jobs that we had to do remotely and we both had kids that had to be homeschooled. And the recording became like the one thing every week or every couple of weeks that if for us, we were no longer taking it for granted. It wasn't me going, oh, I've got to drive to Nick's house again. It was like, oh, I've got a chance to kind of talk about how I feel. Like it actually it became very, very, very therapeutic for us during last year. But I would love to – we're very close to 200 episodes and I we've got like five to go and I would love if we could do a live 200th show because obviously when we started and didn't know what we were doing and didn't even know how to talk into the mics, we would never have thought, are we going to do 200 more of these? Mm-hmm. So I'd love to do a live gig for the 200th. So hopefully, you know um, – Hopefully the restrictions can stay eased in Victoria. Do you ever go back to that uh, March 13 episode and listen to it? Because it, it feels like that would be such an amazing, um, you know, moment in time. You know, I, I remember that time so well as well. Yeah. I, I was actually in a Formula One car going around the racetrack oh my as, God. as part of this like PR bullshit thing. And the whole time, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, driving 300 k's an hour is pretty weird. And then pulling up and thinking this whole thing is cancelled. <laughs> it's even weirder. <laughs> well, it's, I imagine the one the one unbelievably safe place mm. <laughs> uh, to not catch COVID would be in a Formula One car. It's, you've got a helmet on. You're going, I don't know, you're pretty close to the driver. They're, they don't let you do it by yourself. Oh, that's true, actually. Yeah, that's true. You've, um, but, yeah, I, I, I did, when I was putting together our Greatest Hits album, which we just put out, I went back and listened to the live show and I I used audio from different live shows in the greatest hits, but I didn't use that night because I kind of, it's such an odd standalone night in terms of where it stands for us and where it stood in the timeline of COVID. And it's, it's weird. It, it's not, it, 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 it's got a slightly different energy to it. It's celebratory, but you can also feel this kind of trepidation. And interestingly, Nick, Nick is a bit germaphobic, and he actually came out at the start in a mask and gloves, and people thought he was joking, but he was kind of – it was a kind of truth for him that he was scared, like, what's going to happen? And then you can hear this noise through the podcast – uh, that sort of it sounds like that. Like you can hear this like rubbing, and I was like, "What is that noise?" And then I, I, re- I remembered that it was Nick. He actually bought hand sanitizer on stage, and was hand sanitizing himself like routinely throughout the show. And I remember thinking at the time, like, "Oh, that seems a bit excessive." And thinking, and and I was kind of laughing. Like I think there's a bit where I say to him, "Did you just sanitize your hands?" And like it's kind of leaning into the silliness of it. But if you fast forward, I've said this to him a few times. I said he was actually ahead of the curve on the coronavirus <laughs> restrictions. He was doing it before it was cool. He was doing it before you had to do it when you walked into every shop and when you pick up your kids from school. He was doing it a long time before. He he was championing the mask before anyone was doing the mask. And so it's an odd moment in time. I kind of like that it's on that night. Like we used to, we joked on the night. We said this could be the last comedy gig for, you know, this could be the last comedy gig anybody watches for a long time. And it was a joke. Like I didn't. And then it then happened. Like, you know, it, the comedy festival was cancelled and there wasn't another comedy gig in Melbourne for at least six months, maybe even nine months. Like it was, 
Yeah, it was a very, very. Uh, it's a, it's an odd moment in time. I, I kind of like that it's such a distinct moment in time, but it's, uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to do it again. And knowing what we know now, like you wouldn't, you, we would have cancelled the gig. We just didn't, you know, we didn't know that that's what, you know, mm. that's what was going to happen. So, I do remember talking to a guy that night, one of the listeners, and I said, "What do you reckon's going to happen?" And he said, ah, look, it's, and I remember him so flippantly. He wasn't being a bad guy just because we didn't have the information yet. He goes, I work in the hospitality industry. We don't shut down for anything. We'll just keep going. It'll be okay. And then, you know, fast forward a month and everything was shut down. Mm. A few times I did wonder what happened to that guy? Like (laughs) what's he doing now? Yeah. 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 The the other memory that really sticks out for me is um, the the Sunday before then, uh, before everything went Mm. to hell, I took my daughter uh, to the MCG and we watched uh, the, the cricket grand final. Grand final oh, yeah, that was whatever. a Women's World Cup, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, the Women's it? World yeah. Cup uh, yeah. with 110,000 other people. Yeah. And, and uh, again, it was just it was such a weird thing of like looking around the stadium going, is this all? Should I be here? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's yeah. so. And a week later, do you find that. Done. Do you, do you find that thing where you watch? I've been watching uh, the SBS show We Are Who We Are, and in the last episode, they go to a big concert in uh, in uh, Italy, and they're all like jammed in and mm, like mm. you know, uh, and kind of watching this concert. And I found myself getting really anxious watching it. Like I said to my partner, "Oh, there's no social distancing," <laughs> and. It's kind of weird how, like, it's going to be interesting how all that, you know, how all that goes. I think you, it's going to be a very tentative step back for everybody. I, it's funny, I, a friend of mine went to, uh, went to the Cash Savage playing at the forum and she said, everyone was very respectful with the distancing, but she said, you could feel this kind of joy in the room. Like, mm. oh my God, we can do this again. So yes, in that's a very long answer to your question. I hope that we can do a 200th gig um, somewhere. And I imagine Nick will bring enough sanitizer for everybody. Fantastic. Well, uh, if he yeah. does, I'll be there. <laughs> I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is an ABC podcast. A brother and a sister are playing in a band together called Crossbreed. When we say cross, you say cross, cross, cross. When we say cross, you say My name is Ken Lin. This is my six-part podcast about the Christian hip-hop band that changed my life. Yeah, for Crossbreed! This is a nightmare. Imagine how stuck God is, but he'd just be sitting up there in heaven and he'd be... It'd just be munted, it'd be pinging on the Holy Spirit. They shone brighter than the Star of David, but were destroyed faster than Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's when I began to drink the sacramental wine. What sort of a Christian are you? What's with all the Jesus shit, mate? Okay, I'm, I'm pulling over. Does anyone else need to vomit? What the hell is going on? And why am I making this podcast? Because Crossbred were really cool. No one cares about your podcast. 
the idea for this uh um, this chat, I thought, you know, a quick 15 on the sweetest plum. Yeah, sorry. Uh, and and yeah. then we'll move on. Uh, no, no, I've enjoyed every moment. But uh, yeah, 44 minutes in, we should probably talk about uh, what was, I think, my favourite podcast of last year. Oh, thanks very much. No, no, honestly, like I, I've, I've gone back through the lists and stuff and, um, you know, I, I was asked to write a listicle and I don't really like doing that. So I, so I just, mm. uh, kind of, you know, I, I threw you in with, with the mix, but Crossbred was remarkable. It was a really, really fun little series that, that you, that you co-wrote and, and put together. Talk me through, uh, Crossbred and, and, and how it actually started at the ABC. Okay, so it was like so. Crossbred is a uh, is was a podcast about the rise of a fake Christian hip hop group in Baronia, uh, in Victoria. It was it so the ABC about maybe God, I'd say end of two thousand and seventeen were doing a thing where they were asking for scripted podcast pitches. It was a day before they were due in and I hadn't done one yet. And I happened to be in Sydney and I was meeting an old friend of mine that I went to school with and his name is Chris Ryan and he he is now one of Australia's like best like singers in musicals. Like he was the lead in the David Bowie musical and um, he's been in, you know, he's been, he was the lead in the King Kong musical. And we went to high school together and I said to him, I want to do a scripted podcast and I feel like music, it'd be the perfect thing for a musical. And this is like, I had a day to kind of come up with something. And I just said to him, because he had grown up as an opera singer and I always liked those kind of weird insular worlds. And I said would there be something about a brother and a sister who blow up as a kind of opera singing duo? And then he said to me, I really like your idea about doing a podcast as a musical, but if I can stop you there, I've been an opera singer for 20 years and nobody gives a shit about opera singers. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, in fact, it's the one way to clear people at a party Mm -hmm. is to start talking about opera. And he said, but is there something else we could do? And we started talking because we'd gone to school together. We were kind of, and we we had also been in a Christian youth group together. And when you go to those Christian youth camps, there's always a band and the band is the big way to get like people involved in the Christian youth group. And then he said, could we do something about that? Like it's a Christian youth group band that blows up. Somehow they cross over, they go viral and they blow up. And we were trying to work it out because when we were at school, they were always kind of like a bit grungy. Like they're always trying to sound like Pearl Jam or, Mm. and we were trying to work out what would be the music now. And Chris just said to me, he said, and and he's not a huge hip hop fan, but he said, uh, and he, but he knew like, I was kind of like, I'm the kid that grew up wanting to be a rapper and like I'm like the whitest hip-hop fan there ever is and he goes wouldn't it be hip-hop wouldn't that be the way now that you would get a group of people and he just kind of said it off the top of his head and I said that might be it and I literally we had the night to write it and uh, I was staying with him in his apartment and he had to write a page and send it off to the ABC and we just wrote this Christian hip-hop band um, gets picked up by one of the big Pentecostal churches they blow up and they become the biggest thing, except they're not really Christians. And that was kind of it. And we, I don't know, maybe a few months later, we got a phone call from the ABC and found out that they had chosen um, outs to be this scripted comedy podcast. And 
I remember saying to Chris, like, we're going to have to find someone who is, it needs to be good. Like it need, it can't be twee hip hop. Like for it to break, it's, there's got to be something mm-hmm. great about it. I said, we need a really good musician, like a great musician who's also funny. And he, Chris had done a fringe show with Megan Washington and just said, maybe it's Megan Washington. And he said, she is one of the most talented people I've ever met. And she's really funny. And, uh, we we went to he introduced me to her and it turns out Megan was in a Christian youth group. She because she could sing, they would send her out to be one of their big recruiters. Mm-hmm. And like five minutes into the conversation, I was just like, it has to be Megan. She's gotta be in this thing. Like and we all started working on it. We wrote it pretty quickly. We wrote it probably in about we talked about it a lot, but the actual writing we did it in about three months and we just sat there and we kind of what we tried to write we weren't ever trying to make fun of Christians because we had all grown up in Christian youth groups. But at the same time, like we loved things like Spinal Tap and it's like you want to you, you wanna capture the truth of it and then kind of like exaggerate it. And so we just told true stories about what happened to us in Christian youth groups, like the big the, – you'd go to these big tents in the middle of the – bush somewhere and there'd be this huge like christian thing with all these kids and we so we kept writing about all of that and we we just got this idea that it would be the rise and fall and then the rise again of a christian hip-hop group and it was one of those things that you you don't always know that you're onto a winner but the first time me chris and megan sat in a room and we started talking about our experiences and just plotting them on the wall i just i i just had this feeling it's going to work. I just kind of, I just, I thought maybe, maybe we've got God on our side. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah. And then the first, the first song that Megan wrote, I said, we need a song that, that hooks everybody that catches everybody that listens to this, to this, everyone in the show that listens to this fake band has to be turned into a, into a Christian. And she wrote this amazing song called just Jesus about what if Jesus appeared at, in the food court of a suburban shopping center. And as soon as she wrote it and she texts, she like sent it to me as a voice message. And I just, I, I mean, I, it was just the most extraordinary thing. And, uh, you know, you put it out and it was in the middle of the pandemic. And I, I was like, is anyone going to care about this? Like, it's such an absurd thing about the rise of this Christian Pentecostal hip hop group. And I think because it was so different to the reality of what was going on, it was a complete alternate reality. It was quite absurd. The characters were quite lovable and it, you know, within a couple of weeks, it was suddenly being named in Apple podcast, best shows. It was named Apple us was, it was named in the best shows. And I think also there wasn't much being made. Like there hadn't been a comedy festival. There Mm. hadn't been, there wasn't going to be a fringe festival. There wasn't much for people to kind of consume and listen to fiction wise. Like a lot of the ABC comedy shows were held up and it suddenly this thing appears and it was its own whole world so far removed from a pandemic. Like there's thousands of people at the gigs, Mm, you know, mm. in the podcast. And I think it was such an alternate reality that people could escape to it for it landed right in the middle of that kind of Melbourne second wave. Yep, like yep. It, 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 or right at the start of it, it was like, I think we started in some in July and it, I think it was just a kind of, it was kind of an escape or an alternate reality for people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing you said that really stuck out was um, the, the fact that you didn't, you didn't make fun of mm. 
this group of people that it would be so easy to to take mm. the easy gags to to play on the easy gags of the, of these people but instead mm. and i think you know obviously you you were incredibly lucky and and god was smiling on you when when uh it turns <laughs> out you were all part of a youth group and and you had mm. that experience you had that when i listen to it there's a real sense of place um that mm. that comes through like the food courts like the 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 weird suburban churches that you find yeah I never grew up in in Melbourne suburbs, uh, but I felt those suburbs as I was listening to it. Uh, I could I could mm. picture exactly what those food courts looked like. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and and so all of that was lovely. And 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 I listened to it all in you know part of my job is to listen to lots of podcasts and find the good mm. ones and elevate them. Uh, and so I had heard about this, and so I stuck it on. And thought that I'd listen to one or two episodes and and then maybe get in touch with you. Um, and I was picking up uh, something for my kid. This was when mm. you couldn't leave more than five k's from your house during Melbourne lockdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and my friend actually lived forty k's away, so I felt like I was doing yeah. some kind of like Cold War. You know, <laughs> like I was crossing the city border. I did a couple of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I know, was, I know. You know, and, and in my head, I was like, I'm not doing anything wrong because I'm just like. I'm pulling up to his house. He's going to put the thing in the boot and then I'm going to drive away yeah. and there's going to be no contact at all. But I was still terrified as I was driving down the freeway of like, I'm, I'm six Ks from my house. What, what's going to happen? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, the, during that whole time, I, I, I put on episode one and by the time I came back from, uh, you know, my, my terrifying run, um, I mm. had listened to the entire series and I, I was just in love with it. Yeah. Look, I think it, it we, the, it, when you initially write something, you, you kind of, you, you cycle through the kind of easy jokes for something. And we kind of realized it would be really easy to make fun of Christianity, especially, you know, with some of the things that have happened in Catholic schools. And we kind of realized that, and then we kind of also realized that we had two things. We could easily make fun of Christianity and we could easily make fun of Aussie hip hop. And um, there's great Australian hip hop, but there's also kind of the, you know, the cliched version of like drinking some beers and talking to mates kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And we kind of realized like, it's not going to work. It's going to run out. Like if you do a gag and it's not based in a truth and we all realize that if we all three of us, in our own different ways. And Megan lived in Brisbane. We lived in Melbourne, had all been attracted to Christian youth groups. And we all knew people that were, there's got to be something that's attracting people with kids to it. Like there's got to be some truth in it. And likewise, we kind of thought like there's a truth in that suburbia. And so you want to anchor it to that truth. Like there was heaps of gags we didn't, or heaps of kind of characters we didn't do that would have just been too easy. And to, they were just throw away. And, I kind of felt like if you can if you can catch that truth because when you're a kid like you try on lots of different masks like I I loved hip hop growing up but then I also loved going to these Christian youth groups but then I would go and listen to these songs that were like set in like South Central LA and so you've got like you've got all these worlds and you when you when you're a kid you like you earnestly believe something like whatever it is whether it's your religion whether it's a music whether it's uh, I don't know whether it's a, a a book that you like, like you believe it more than anything. Like you kind of, there's a, there's a purity to that belief. And we thought we have to catch what attracted us to it and that, and, and find the truth in that and find the truth in the kind of human relations. And so 
that was kind of it. Like we just always reminded ourselves, don't, you know, like don't, don't take the piss, like don't take the easy way on this. Like you'll find something funny, but don't, don't do the kind of easy gags on it. And it, I don't know, it was in, in some ways it was a way for us to, Chris and I had been in this Christian youth group, but never really talked about it. Like, you know, for 10, 15, 20 years or this odd chapter of our life. Mm. And it was a way to recapture that, you know, suburban upbringing. Like we, you know, the, I mean, yeah, the food courts, that was where, you know, before there was trendy cafes or there was places that kids could go and hang out, you would meet in the Doncaster shopping town food court. You know, that was, that was where you went. And so for us, it was kind of, we were trying to catch a truth of that time. My only concern was like, I remember saying to Chris, I'm a bit worried because if you go to like Doncaster shopping town food court now, like it's really really upmarket. Yep. Like yep. it's kind of like it looks like you're walking into a restaurant or it like and like a really like a luxury kind of place. And I said, do those, you know, do they still exist? And uh we yeah, but it it, it obviously caught some truth in people because it I think it had a touch of nostalgia to it mm. of like and that it was a time that wasn't the pandemic and it was kind of, it had a touch of innocence to it. And when we didn't know nearly as much as we know now. So maybe that's, maybe that's what resonated. Yeah. Yeah. And, and mate, those, those uh, food courts still exist. You live just around the corner from Northland. (laughs) (laughs) I have a very, very, very deep affection to Northland. I like that you have to walk through the, pretty much the main entrance walks you through the food court. Mm -hmm. So there's no such thing as a calm meal there. Wherever you sit, there's just hordes of people walking past you. Yeah, I I kind of – it's interesting. You have kids and you have to go and shop at those places. I've kind of regrown an affection for mm, those places mm. now. I kind of you, – you can get yourselves lost. They're kind of like you walk in and you walk into a – into a different world. So yeah, that was the, that was the thing. And I, I just, I still remember when Megan sent me that song and she had written it and it's the one that blows the group up and she had got her producer. Who's a guy called Mario Spate. Who's done lots of like pop music records. And she said to him, you need to make this the biggest hip hop pop music, like uh kind of emphatic song and I didn't know him at all and I remember she sent it and it was two days before we had to finish the podcast and I went for a walk just going please let this sound good and I started listening to it and it's this epic kind of song about Jesus visiting a food court and I initially started when you could only just walk around the corner from your house during the pandemic I was wearing a mask and I initially started laughing because it just sounded so ridiculous these lyrics that we'd written was so, and with this epic background. And then once it hit and the crowd starts talking in tongues and there's record scratching, I just burst into tears and I never react to my own work. I don't laugh at it. I don't. And I just like, and I think it was a bit the pandemic as well. I was in this side street near my house and this guy in his front yard sees this guy in a mask with headphones on laughing and crying simultaneously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't know what, he was kind of like looking at me like, are you okay? And I just had this moment where I was like, I don't really care how this is received. Like I know that we've made something that's very truthful to us. Like, and, uh, then you know luckily it was received it was received very well and it yeah it was it's uh i'm I'm, yeah i'm very very proud of it must be remarkable to come up with an idea like that and uh so far 
away from someone like Megan Washington and then seeing what uh, a creative person like that can bring to the, the, the idea that you had and, and seeing it transform in that way. I remember the first time she came to my house and we were trying to, we were plotting the show and trying to write songs and she had her computer with logic and a keyboard and, and she goes, so what's the song like? And I would say, I would, I would play her a hip hop song that I liked growing up and she go, oh, okay, I get it. And then she would, she literally build a beat and then build music on top of it. And you're watching this, like I can, I could write the lyrics, but I, I, I can't make the music and you're watching this come together in front of you, it's this weird thing. You kind of often write what you wish could have happened. Like you kind of write the, you know, you you, you kind of, and I think, you know, this 15-year-old kid, I kind of wanted to be a rapper and make music, but it was never, ever, ever going to happen. It was just this fantasy that you had as a 15-year-old kid and then suddenly this music's appearing in front of you. And I just found it, I mean, what she taught me was, in my mind there was like writing and there was music and she just said kind of flippantly one day, she just goes, but everything's, she goes, everything's musical. And she said, when you tell a story in a song, you still have to have the music at the start and you have to build and there has to be a climax. And when she said everything's musical, it kind of tied those two bits of my life together that I thought were separate, this love of music growing up and this love of writing. It was like, oh my, I just literally hadn't had that thought. I've, comedy writing so much about dialogue and jokes and, and I just went oh, it is musical like you're kind of creating a composition and so uh and especially with a podcast you're trying to you're trying to create a world for the listener it was yeah it was a remarkable it was just one of those moments where you just that only happen every now and then in this industry but I just I just had this moment as we we're writing it where I just thought I really like that my life has ended up here yeah um, now you said you have kids and mm-hmm. what was it like? And one of them's about to walk into the room, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. I've heard a bit like scratching at the door. <laughs> well, I'll let you go in a second. Uh, what were, what was their reaction when they walked into their home and found Calypso from Bluey? Um, <laughs> they were, once I said this is, cause you know, somebody new is suddenly working in your house, writing these songs. And I said, oh guys, this is, I actually said, this is Calypso from um, Bluey, and they were in awe that there's a little like with the four year old, he's trying to work out like, oh, hang on, if she's the voice, then who's the character? Because those characters are still real to him. Mm. But I mean, it's to be Calypso from Bluey on what was their favorite show? Like when every new episode came out, they would immediately watch it. It was kind of like the jaws hit the floor, and they don't care what I they didn't care what I do or my writing it's just like you know Calypso it gave me a huge amount of parent cred (laughs) in my house a huge amount of parent cred I I carried that cred for a long long time well congratulations on that uh finally finally uh because your kids are probably desperate to see you again um What's it like right now, uh, being a comedian working in Australia, watching things like uh, Auntie Donna become so successful on Netflix and, um, the, you know, Amazon are dipping their toes mm. into live comedy and, uh, as well. How do you feel about the industry at the moment? I, I love that Auntie Donna got that show. I saw their first ever show. I was at, I had seen a friend play at the Portland Hotel and the Portland Hotel is quite juicy now, but at the time it was uh, it was a former strip club where some of the stages still had the poles on them <laughs> and people were doing comedy. And w- I'd watched a friend play that night and then we were in the bar and 
we were just like, oh, we should see another show. And Auntie Donna were playing at 11 p.m. at the Portland Hotel. And I went in with a friend and it was everything that you love about young comedians starting. It was the energy in that room was wild. They were playing on this tiny stage. That The stage was built like they, in this empty room. It was built out of wood. And there was this small door. And I remember they kept bumping into each other going in and out of the door. And the, But they came into the crowd. And I just remember thinking it had the most phenomenal energy to it. And it had this kind of very infectious energy. They were still young. So they hadn't quite, they hadn't quite, they'd found their voice, but they were still working on their craft. And for months after that, or not for months, for weeks after that, I said to Bill, you've got to see Auntie Donna. You've got to see Auntie Donna. And I really admired that they kept sticking with it, you know, for years after that and kept kind of experimenting with their comedy and kept working. Cause when it starts and you've got that excitement, that's the easy bit, like we were saying about the podcast, but it's when you get two, three years in and you're, you know, you might've missed a couple of things or you just, you haven't had that next big opportunity kick off. That's the hard bit. That's when a lot of people kind of, I was a sketch comedian and after three years of doing it, I kind of went, okay, that's enough now. Like I, I didn't, I didn't have another thing to say. And so when I watched Auntie Donna and similar to Crossbred, I just loved that on that American show, they were mentioning things like Crazy John's mobile phone. Same. And, that, I, uh, I think that's one of the bits yeah. that really just blows my mind every time I see it. It's like, you know, Ringwood Car City and like... Uh, we- car, uh, the Car City one. I bought my car from Car City. Mm. Like, it, it, and everybody remembers those ads, but I loved because when you work on a show, especially in Australia, I think we have a kind of an inbuilt, a lot of producers and a lot of like, network people have an inbuilt inferiority complex where they think, oh, you can't make a reference that people won't understand overseas. I don't even know if it's inferiority. They just get scared Mm. of alienating the viewer. And the amount of times I've been told, don't put that in, nobody knows what that reference is or don't do that. And it was interesting because in Crossbred, we decided we're going to say Forest Hill, we're going to say Baronia, we're going to mention the names of streets in Baronia. And it worked. People would Mm. text us Mm. and say, I grew up in that area. I can't believe that you, you know. Well, again, it's it's, it's what makes Bluey so lovely as well is, that the, the this is a bluey feels like it's in brisbane it feels like it oh, that that's why bluey stands out because it's not melbourne it's not sydney where everything gets made it's queensland it uses the color of queensland and it's got the pace of queensland it doesn't do that thing that kids shows do where they cut really fast and there's no breath like so many animations are like like you kind of you worry that it's turning your kid into like add or something and bluey just plays out like there's one episode i'm pretty sure one episode with the grandmother plays out in like two shots at the birthday party mm. it just plays mm. between two rooms and the kids are still enthralled by it. You don't need a thousand cuts to kind of keep their attention. If you write a good story and you have a good sense of place and a and a truth to it, people will keep watching. And so I, I when I saw that in Auntie Donna, I, I immediately, I knew Broden quite well and I texted him and I just said, fucking good on you. I'm going to be for using all those references for leaning in hard on your Australianness and this, and not explaining it. Why is a bunch of Australians living in a share house mm. in LA? Mm. Like, it's never explained. <laughs> and and why you... does Car City Ringwood uh, sponsoring yeah. the Ellen Show? <laughs> no, it's amazing. I mean, they've got references to like footy play, like Gary Lyon. Mm-hmm. They mention at one stage, and I, 
I immediately, I'll be using that as like evidence to producers and people for years who say, don't use that reference because they leaned into those references. They leaned into who they are. They'd always use those kind of like Rocker Steadford references. Mm -hmm. And, and the thing is what it does is like Bluey or it creates something distinct that no one else can copy. So there's hundreds of sketch shows in the States on streamers, but nobody else is talking about Car City Ringwood. Or nobody else is mentioning Crazy John's mobile phones. And so it suddenly gets its own language and its own sound and it makes it feel very and feel very distinct. And so I was so pleased for them. And I kind of, uh, I mean, you know, even just the idea of like they keep every episode, somebody dies who visits their house and they turf them into one of the like green rubbish bins. Yeah, yeah. Like that's so Australian suburban. And I could imagine, you know, producers saying like, oh, why have they got those green bins and they're in LA? And it's like, because that's the world of the show and that's who they are. And to me, it makes total sense. And so I, yeah, I feel like it's a very exciting period for Australian comedy, especially for the DIY people. Like there's the Auntie Donna guys who did it for so long, who played live, who made sketches on YouTube and then they're blowing up on Netflix. There's the Kates, um, who I came up with. The first show I ever did at uni, Kate McCartney uh, was in, and I knew Kate McLennan when she was starting as a as a stand-up and a sketch comedian. And their stuff is so distinct to them, like nobody else could make that. Mm. Um, I feel like there's just this little moment where possibly it's been kind of amplified by the pandemic, but it's the people who made stuff themselves and for themselves and who didn't compromise on their vision that it started, you know, people like Greg Larson, who, you know, makes his own stuff and, um, Ann Edmonds, people like that. They're all DIYers. They don't wait for a show or a network to call them. They just make it and they put it up. It's not that they just throw everything out there. They craft it mm. and it has their own distinct voice. And, you know, even Crossbred kind of fell into that. It's, it couldn't be made anywhere else. It is a show about a Christian youth group in Melbourne. And I kind of, that was something I got out of the pandemic that was very exciting. I got very worried for comedians and the industry when the comedy festival got canceled. And then I realized the people that want to, and the people that love making their own stuff will keep finding a way, you know, they'll shoot stuff on mobile phones or they'll record audio sketches. They'll keep writing stuff and they'll keep making stuff and they'll find a way. I found it I found it extremely heartening. And so I'm kind of quite excited about this next wave of Australian comedy. Excellent. Uh, look, I've taken far too much of your time and mine as well. I'm, I'm now way behind on everything else I needed to do, but you've been such a great <laughs> guest. I, well, thanks. I, I just kept wanting to chat. No, thanks very much. It's a really, it's a pleasure to talk about it. And someone who's gone so deep on podcasts and local comedy and who knows it, who, you know, you're not a freelancer. You're, you're actually listening to all the stuff and living it. And, uh, uh, it's really, you know, it's a huge, it's a huge pleasure. And you, I'm, I'm not sucking up because you've already written an article on us. Um, <laughs> the, w- what you do by writing about local stuff, and because you wrote one about Greg Larson and the Grub doing mm. their, I mean that. That that you're writing about what people are making, and not you're writing it before it's gotten to this huge popularity, and you know they're this. That's the stuff that people and the next generation listen to. So it's a you. I I would talk to you for as long as you need it because I think you're doing a really good um, service for our industry. Oh, thank you, mate. Thank you. Um, all right. Well, thank you once again for joining me, and uh, yeah, I, I'll listen to everything you make, mate. All right. Thanks Excellent. so much, Declan. Thanks, mate. Bye. Cheers.
Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And I, when we're allowed to meet in person again, well, I think we can possibly meet yeah, now. Yeah, so yeah. maybe we should, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe we like Moonjolk World or something. Because we're, we're, I'm, <laughs> I'm Reza. I, I know you're Preston, yeah? Or Ah, your, your reservoir. Yeah, there's, look, there's still, we could meet down at the, I often take my kids to Crocs Play Center. That's down I on the it. industrial yeah, estate. Yeah. No, well, there not was, well. During the holidays, a lot of like kids in the thing, like basically, you know, climbing on this climbing on things and endangering themselves in the holidays while manic parents are like typing on laptops yep, inside yep. the crocs so that's where you know people often ask at the end of an interview where can people find you during the week that's where you will find me <laughs> at a kids play center hunched over a laptop mm. tethering the signal to my mobile phone no I'll, I'll give you some advice um uh local advice uh the play shed in thomastown um, all of the yeah. shit that they can climb on is super well padded yeah. and super safe. Um, and they have really yeah. good high speed Wi-Fi. Oh my God. I didn't know. I know go climb mm. and I know there's the cheeky monkeys one that yeah. is, yeah. um, down in Northland. I've never heard. What did you call it? Uh, the play shed cafe. It's in Thomastown in the industrial estates. <laughs> um, and, and, and uh. there's like a proper, Good fence that they can't get through to to. Oh, this is a this is a revelation because Crocs is great, mm. but there is no fence, and the kids get the cars that Crocs have, and they drive them through where all the parents sit. So as you're sending an email, there's somebody's four year old is ramming a car into your <laughs> ankle. You kind of leave with like serious like lower leg injuries. So um, that is the play shed. That is a that's a revelation. That's this interview is worth it just for that. <laughs> I tell you what, man, the amount of uh, SMH articles that have been tapped out in the play shed while my kid is bouncing on like very heavily padded um, safe yeah. equipment. It, it's yeah. Take that one. Well, I'm looking bank. after my four year old today. I tell you what, it could be the play shed in the afternoon. That that might be uh, <laughs> that might be where we go. Enjoy, enjoy, and report back. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.